to the Unexpected Story Podcast. For the first episode today, I have Glenn Roseberry here with me. Glenn has been doing mission work in Africa for the past 12 years. For two decades, he was a successful businessman in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. He was driving his dream car, the famous black Porsche around town, and the Lord unexpectedly and radically touched his heart and called him to surrender his life and move to Africa. Today, Glenn will share his story of how God transformed his heart. Here is part one of my conversation with Glenn. Welcome, Glenn, and thank you so much for taking time to sit with me. Well, thank you for having me. Glenn is actually getting on a plane in two days to head back to Africa, so I'm very thankful for your time. Take us back to the beginning of your journey with the Lord. Well, I became a Christian when I was 16 years old. I don't know how far back you want to go. Uh, But I became a Christian when I was 16 years old and uh, was really blessed to be in a situation where I was surrounded by a lot of people on fire for the Lord. And uh, my whole family had gotten saved uh, before I did. And so uh, I was almost like uh, in a very protective environment, surrounded by people that really loved the Lord and loved me. And so my first uh, several years in the Lord were uh, really blissful years, I would have to say. uh, I was very much on fire for the Lord, shared my faith a lot, led some people to the Lord. And and uh, I've always been someone that was comfortable speaking uh, before other people. I don't know why I never had any training or anything. but um, And so I was frequently asked to share my testimony and my faith, and I did so. And so on one level, I... Um, uh, I, I had a lot of practical application of talking about Jesus from the time I was just 16 years old. In high school, even, we had a um, um, uh, kind of a, a prayer meeting group that got together, but it wasn't like what you think of as a prayer meeting Bible study thing. We had literally hundreds of kids coming together in praise and worship. It was spontaneous. There was no adult leadership. Uh, it was passionate and uh we were literally uh, leading people to Christ in the morning before school. We were sharing our faith all during the day during school. We got in trouble with the school because we were literally disruptive because we were sharing with so many people. Our group was the largest group that met before school. And so it was in this environment to where what we were doing in the Lord was actually disturbing everything around us. And I was used to that. That was normal to me. And uh, we didn't identify with any denomination or group. We had people from Southern Baptist, Catholic, uh, Protestant, uh, different Pentecostal organizations. Of course, this was before the charismatic movement, so there was nothing like that out there. So it was all old school Pentecostal holiness type people, and we were all mixed in. We were uh, people that, you know, hair down our back and the other uh, people that, you know, were very much from the old holiness movement where they dress very, very ultra conservative and super short hair. None of us really cared. And uh, so it was just an amazing time. Wasn't a lot of theologists, a lot of loving Jesus and loving each other and telling people about Jesus. So that's kind of your foundation with the Lord. And talk about your business journey, becoming a businessman getting the famous Porsche that we'll talk about. Ah, okay. Well, I, I tell this story, and it's it's kind of followed me around more than I ever thought that it would. But I, I had uh, uh, been a successful business person in my life. I had at one point early in my, um, my uh, life, just at 28 or 29 years old, had become rather uh, successful and um, had slowly... Uh, uh, in my journey with the Lord, I had uh, become very successful also on a business standpoint. And for myself personally, 
it was kind of my demise. I, um, you know, the Bible says we can't serve both God and mammon, but I was absolutely convinced that that's not what it said. What it said was be careful trying to serve God and mammon. And actually the Bible says you can't do it. And I have found out you can't. Uh, but anyway, so in my particular situation, I was worship leader at church. I, uh, I was very involved in the pro-life movement. My wife and I were one of the first foster homes that would take women from anywhere in the United States that wanted to come live with us and carry their baby to term. So we got, got quite a bit of uh, experience that we'd never had before. But, but my point is we were very on fire. We were very much trying to uh, apply our faith and um, we were sharing and serving in this way. And at that time, right after Roe v. Wade had happened, uh, it was still very fresh in all of America's mind, very new. And so the church was trying to figure out how to respond and help those ladies. And we were kind of at the front of that as well. But um, uh, so anyway, that's that was kind of the context I was in. However, like most young men and that are married, you know, all of a sudden, you know, having a nicer house and furthering your career and and providing for your family becomes paramount, and that's part of our responsibility as men. And as a result, though, I, I kind of went overboard on that. Um, I began to uh, receive a lot of approbation from my friends and peers because I was being successful in my career, and I liked it. I liked the fact that people respected me and thought more of me because of these things, and I noticed that was really important in the world. So I began to venture out a little bit. So not only did I start working hard and doing well in my job, but then I started uh, make, taking some risk business-wise and began to buy some real estate property and got a store in the mall and um, just different things that I began to do. And I became to be very successful. And then I won't go into detail, but I had a situation, you know, every man's dream when I was growing up in the 80s, you know, they call us the decade of excess, you know, was to be a millionaire before you were 30. As a result, I got leveraged way over my head, made some mistakes, stupid decisions, and I wound up uh, going from someone everyone admired to the, just the, the absolute pits. I mean, just the doldrums of failure. I'd never failed before. It was a new experience to me. Uh, all the accolades and admiration I had of my friends was gone, and now all of a sudden, you're an idiot because you failed. And uh, But more importantly, what had happened was I, I had moved my life's purpose and goal from serving the Lord and being a Christian. And even though I was still leading worship and I was still going to church and I was part of a big church plant or a new church plant, and even though we were surrounded by committed brothers and everything, I had really totally moved my value system over. And as a result, when I failed uh, business-wise, um, I was looking for somebody else to blame. And I never said the words, I blame God, but I did. And, uh, and over the next couple of years, I moved rapidly and with prejudice away from the Lord because it was his fault. Mm -hmm. And uh, I destroyed myself, my family, uh, lost all my friends, and uh, went down a road of addiction and, and never became an alcoholic, but I certainly dr drank like one. And uh, lived a horrible life. My father would tell you to this day that it was the worst 10 years of his life. And, uh, and it was a terrible and a horrible time. I came back to the Lord after that, after really hitting rock bottom. And I, I won't even go how far rock bottom is because it's like I hit rock bottom. Then I got a shovel out and started digging and thought I'd find a new rock bottom. And, and so it was a 
a terrible existence. I was miserable. Um, and uh, I came home one day at the height of my misery. And I hadn't prayed in probably 10 or 11 years. I was mad at God. Once again, I'd never said those words, but it's so obvious. And I literally got on my knees like a you see a little kid in one of these pictures on a child's wall where they're kneeling with their teddy bear, you know, and they got their little hands together. They're supposed to look all cute and stuff. Well, it wasn't very cute. You know, I was an addict. I was a wreck. I was miserable. I was in terrible health, and I knelt beside a bed like that on my knees. And I didn't know how to pray. I hadn't prayed in 10 years. And uh, all I said over and over again was, mercy, mercy, mercy. And the Holy Spirit came over me. I I was driving down the road a couple of weeks later. And of course, I hadn't listened to any Christian music in many, many years. song on the radio that just kind of exemplified the whole thing. There was a a song where this guy was talking about how that um, that when he came to God and he began to cry out and he came to God from his, his sin and error that he said it was like mercy was inside the Holy of Holies and it was pressing against the veil. And that when he finally broke down and cried out for mercy and cried out for God to save him, they said that mercy ripped the veil and in the song, it said, mercy came running like a prisoner set free. And when I heard that song after being away from God for so long, I had to pull over and I wept on the side of the road because I realized that all along God was waiting on me to cry out for his mercy. And when I did, mercy came running like a prisoner set free. I have found in my life, most of my problems are all self-inflicted <laughs> and they also are mostly centered on me. And so this was a classic example of such a thing. And so that was the real turning point of my life. They are getting started. Yeah. Moving on from there, I later uh, um, came, came, obviously began to walk with the Lord again, a little wiser than I was the first time. Went through some other business setbacks from time to time, but it never affected me like that before uh, because I, I, I learned what can be lost by turning our back on God. At the same time, uh, I moved back to Memphis, Tennessee, and, uh, and I began having some above-average success, um, and I began to uh, not only work for one or two companies, but more companies. Uh, I don't know why anybody would let me work for more than one company, but obviously I uh, was able to do that and, and prospered quite well. I invested in, a, uh, actually bought a company that uh, published magazines, and I began publishing a magazine they published, and then I branched out into some other magazines that uh, I wanted to do. And so I began writing at that time and, and began to hire people and, and, and promote that. Later on, I, I got involved in a, um, um, uh, a restaurant co slash coffee shop type situation uh, over uh, uh, on the uh, Mud Island area out of Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, my daughter ran that business. And then I had some friends contact me that wanted me to run the back of the house in their business. And I got involved in telecom IT, executive placement service, and even a uh, cigar store and, and just different things that I got involved in with other people. And so the next thing you know, you know, I had 
you know, six or eight, depending on how, whether you want to count every magazine as a company. I had, you know, five or eight companies at that point we were running. And of course, um, I thought my life was going really good. And in fact, it was going good. So at that point, you know, I, uh, like I said, was highly involved in my church and, um, and everybody looked at it as this kind of perfect American Christian dream. It's what everybody's supposed to do. You know, you're affluent, you're successful, you go to church, you're, you um, uh, are highly involved in that kind of thing. My church, our first, it was a little church plant, new church plant, Island Community Church in Memphis, Tennessee. And so we had our first little Bible study started in my house. And the first, first people we led to the Lord was the result of that Bible study. And, and uh, But I was really affected by the fact that uh, this church was started by uh, men and also had several ladies that were really focused on the short-term and long-term mission work. And I'd never even met a missionary. I think I'd spoken to one in a church meeting one time and, uh, and was always amazed why would anybody leave America and go somewhere and serve overseas. I thought it was, uh, I was always uh, really curious why anybody would do anything that stupid. It was kind of the way I thought about it. I mean, it was certainly something for other people, not for me. And, uh, but I was, I always admired people that went. And when I met people at Island Community Church, I met a whole bunch of people that were just like me that were going on short-term mission trips. And so I was very intrigued by the, the, the church being so mission focused, you know, most places I'd gone to church, you know, they sent money, to some missionary that we never met, or if he came, he came in and spoke for 10 minutes, showed some slide of starving kids and he walked away and we never saw anything again. And so this was all very new to me. Another thing that was very new to me was our pastor at the time was uh, was so good at sharing his faith. He was still going to seminary, and he could just share his faith at a drop of a hat anywhere. And he was so good at it that, you know, uh, he would literally, we'd go running errands, and he'd walk up to me and say, you can run on without me. You know, I'll find my way home in a few days, or I'll find my way home in a couple of hours this guy wants me to stay and tell him about Jesus when he goes on break. And we're just like in a store, a retail store. And I'm like, how does this happen? I mean, how does this guy keep coming to a place to where people want him to tell them about Jesus? And I remembered when I was first a Christian, just on fire for the Lord, I used to tell people about Jesus all the time. And now I was so business focused and I was so into my own self. I I never even looked up long enough to even think about those type of things. And so uh, I, I knew that was something that when I was closest to the Lord, I did. And I always believed that that was the true sign of whether we loved Jesus was when we were telling other people about him. And I know that when I was telling other people about Jesus, that's when I was closest to Jesus. That it wasn't, and, and I wasn't trying to tell people about Jesus for some kind of legalistic reason. I just knew that whenever I was madly in love with God, I just wanted to tell everybody. And I had to face up to the fact that you're not telling everybody. And so I was trying to wonder if I could get back to being this in love with God again and if maybe this wasn't the key for me. And uh, so I asked uh, uh, my pastor at the time, it was uh, uh, Jeff Bronner, and I asked him if he would show me how to do this. And he showed me the mechanics of it, but, and, and I appreciated that. That was good to you know, learn some Bible verses and things like that. But what was really so impressive to me about him and his life is it wasn't the mechanics. It was the fact that it just flowed out of him everywhere he went. And I knew that's 
what I wanted. Uh, certainly happy to learn the mechanics, but, you know, why don't I want to tell everybody about Jesus all the time? And so I, I was kind of going down this path of trying to rediscover what it was like to love God with all my heart and soul and mind again. And so anyway, over the course of time, I had also uh, uh, always wondered why Jesus talked about the kingdom of God all the time and we kind of never talked about it. I always wondered why Jesus gave all these hard commands and teachings and we avoided them and made excuses why we shouldn't have to do them. And it was like the American Christianity spent a lot of time and effort separating itself from the Christianity that Jesus seemed to be calling us to. So I had this this kind of three-pronged thing going on in my life. Why does Jesus talk about things and ask us to do things and expect things and we totally ignore them? Our gospel didn't even sound like his gospel. And then why, when I was so passionately in love with the Lord, am I telling everybody about Jesus? And now I'm not. And so I just realized that I was so far off of what God really wanted me to do. And so so uh, uh, Jeff hooked me up with some brothers and, and put me in a situation to where I began to go and share my faith. Uh, at a place called Impact Ministries in Memphis. And just to give you the nutshell of what they did over there was they had identified some of the poorest of the poor. We have two zip codes in Memphis up in Frazier, which is in the north part of Memphis. At the time, those two zip codes were the two poorest zip codes in America. They also, uh, Memphis uh, frequently gets called the murder capital of the United States from time to time. The truth of the matter is it's uh, particularly when I was here 12 and 15 years ago doing this, uh, it was based on those two zip codes. And uh, I mean, it was it was terrible and it was dangerous. And everybody told me I was going to get killed going up there and sharing my faith, which was nothing like that ever happened. And uh, so anyway, I started going up there and sharing my faith, and I began to lead people to the Lord. And uh, I stumbled and bumbled, didn't know what I was doing very good. But over a period of time, I began to lead first one or two people, and then more and more, and then I started kind of keeping track with it. And I know this sounds kind of crazy, but for like 18 to 24 months, I went up there every Saturday, the doors were open. I don't think that I missed Every Saturday, the doors were open, and uh, I uh, I prayed with over 175 people to come to the Lord during that period of time, and uh, I began discipling people and started really discipling guys that were violent offenders that uh, had gone to prison and come out, rough group of guys, and uh, at this point, I began to find answers for my questions about why is our gospel so different, and I began to changed the gospel that I began to sh- had been sharing. You know, so much of the American Christian gospel is is focused on, uh, we're going to tell people Jesus loves them, Jesus died for them so we can get them saved and they can go to heaven. And But in the Bible, we see Jesus saying, you must hate your mother, father, sister, brother, renounce your own possessions, give up everything, take up your cross and come and follow me. And so I changed my gospel message to asking people to give up everything and follow Jesus instead of getting saved and go to heaven. And, uh, and so I began to, to, to emphasize that. I also began to try to obey the complete um, Great Commission. You know, Jesus said to go into all the world. I was doing that. Uh, making disciples. I was trying to do that. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the last thing is teaching them to obey all I command you. 
And what's so funny about us as American Christians is we don't think we're supposed to obey the commands of the Lord. It's not important. So why would you teach anybody? Yet Jesus has it in the Great Commission. In fact, I would say that's how you disciple people is teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded them. Because when we do that, boy, are they going to be confronted with every shortcoming and flaw in the whole wide world (laughs) will be brought to light when you try to obey the commands of Jesus and their secrets and treasures in making that attempt. So anyway, I began to do all of that. And then um, uh, as I was doing this, I began to seek first the kingdom of God. I was slowly becoming confronted with the fact that as I began to make disciples and, and try to lead these men, is it, I still owned all these companies and I had all these businesses. Now it's bearing all this fruit from this work on Saturday and and so here I am simultaneously working 60, 70, 80 hours a week and then trying to disciple these guys. And all of a sudden I was confronted with the reality that you can't serve God and mammon, that re- in reality you can't do both. And see, I believe the Great Commission was to make disciples. And I don't believe it was just to the apostles. I believe it was to all of us. And what I found was I couldn't be this corporate guy, this entrepreneur guy, chasing money in business, and a disciple maker at the same time. Uh, It's it's impossible. In fact, I tell people now, it costs everything to be a disciple. And I know this sounds crazy, but it costs twice as much to make disciples. There is an insane amount of commitment that we have to make if you're looking at things through the world's eyes, but it is the most reasonable commitment when you look at it, what God's done for us. And so I decided that I could not, I, I could either make disciples or I could be this entrepreneur, successful business guy and, and chase that. But I couldn't do both. And so I had to make a decision. And um, um, people always talk about my famous Porsche story. I'll insert it here. I had been sharing down at Impact Ministries and it was the weekend before Thanksgiving and I had led a 70-year-old lady to pray with me and, and accept Christ. And and on the Sunday before Thanksgiving, we gave crazy amount of food. We gave frozen turkeys and hams. And they got seven or eight bags of groceries out during this ministry. And by the way, the way the ministry worked was we identified these poor people and we provide groceries and all for them. And while they waited for us to get all those ready and packed, is that they were given an opportunity to be prayed with or somebody to share with them. And they could just talk to them and, uh, you know, just bring a prayer request, whatever. But it allowed us an opportunity to sit in private and have this conversation with uh, with somebody. And that's the context that I was in when I led all these people to the Lord. So there was a 70-year-old lady, the oldest person I'd ever talked to at the time. And her name was Juanita. And we sat down and I shared with Juanita and she'd gone to church all her life, but had never repented of her sins and never personally put her faith uh, and believing Christ had, had died for her and that God uh, had a plan for her and to give her life and surrender her life and live for Jesus. And so we worked through and talked through all that and we had prayed together and then we'd stayed in fellowship and hung out until we kind of realized when we looked around, everybody else was gone. You know, you can do that sometimes in a great conversation. You don't realize how time flies. And so she left with her groceries, and I went and did some other things in the building. I don't remember what else. And I came walking outside, and the parking lot was empty. 
And Juanita's sitting on the curb and all these groceries around it, and she's just sitting there. And I go, Juanita, what are you doing here? And she said, well, you and I stayed in there so long and talked for so long that when she came out, all the friends I rode with left. And uh, and now I'm trying to call them on my cell phone and they won't answer. Of course, they don't want to come back and get me. And she said, besides, all our groceries wouldn't fit anyway. And I'm sure they're all at home with their groceries. And she said, I'm on my own. I asked her where she lived. And it was about seven or eight miles away. And there was no way she's taking seven, eight bags of groceries there. I asked her if she had any friends could come. And she said, yeah, the ones I came with. And they're not answering <laughs> So I told her I'd take her home. And the problem was at the time I was driving a mid-engine Porsche, so I had parked far away so that, you know, it was more room for the people to park there. And I went, and I mean, the people to get their groceries. So I went and got my car and I drove over. And and uh, I quickly realized with these seven bags of groceries, boy, this was going to be a challenge. And of course, so I put down the convertible roof and I opened the back hatch and you could put about three bags of groceries, really two. And you had to dump the contents out and fold the bags to get two of them in there, a lot of cans and things. Then we opened up the front of the uh, boot of the car where we, we basically it was made to hold a set of golf clubs and we were able to stick a couple of bags of groceries in there and shut the lid. And then Juanita got in the car and I put three or four bags of groceries in her lap and then that left another bag for me. And so I got in the car and I put a bag of groceries in my lap. And I'm sitting there going, this is the stupidest looking thing I've ever seen in my life. And so here me and Juanita and seven or eight bags of groceries with frozen turkeys and hams in it. And here we go. And of course, we got to go to the hood. That's where Juanita lives, you know. And so we go through the hood in this, you know, black, mid-engine Porsche with groceries all over our laps and stuff. And so I pull up to Juanita's house and I walked her in. We put her groceries up and sat on the front porch and drank some tea and just kind of hung out for a few minutes. And I walked out and said goodbye to her. And we're still rejoicing the fact that she'd gotten saved. And I got in my car and I pulled up to the stop sign and, and, and I don't know how to really describe what happened. It was almost like an epiphany though. I, I pulled up to the stop sign, and and I, I once again, I know I sound like a crazy emotional person, but I began to weep, and I realized that this car was kind of part, represented to me, kind of my idea of the American dream. You know, I'd always wanted, uh, I mean, I'd driven Mercedes and Jags and everything, but I'd always wanted the black Porsche, and so I had it. And so I pulled up to the stop sign and I realized how stupid this car was. I mean, I, I had all these guys I'm discipling and I had to, make, they did not, none of them had a car. So I was having to make multiple trips to pick everybody up to get them to house church or to get them to the meeting at the building we met at. And uh, here I was with Juanita and I, I had one person, we got groceries piled all over us. And I realized sitting there at that stop sign that I had, totally changed what mattered to me in life, but I had not made the physical adjustment. So in my heart, I was seeking first the kingdom of God. Uh, in my heart, I wanted to make disciples and lead people to Christ and, and disciple people so that they could learn to make disciples. In my heart, I had exchanged values and I was trying to obey the commands of the Lord and I was trying to teach these men that I was discipling to do the same thing, teaching them to obey all the commands. 
But at the same time, I was living a life that, that was literally just holding me back from doing this to its fullness. And I, and I, I realized sitting there, this Porsche was so indicative that I could only carry one person. I couldn't even carry a bunch of groceries. And so I made up my mind sitting there at that stop sign that I couldn't go on being the guy I was. And I decided that the only way I could do what God had called me to do and this is what went through my brain is I needed to blow my life up and build it all over again and start it all over again. So I, I went home and put the Porsche up for sale. And my dad had a big old Lincoln Continental at the time. I'd laugh and say it's like a Tony Soprano uh, Lincoln Continental. So you could hide all the bodies in the back. But for me, I could hide all the groceries in the back and I could carry all the disciples and the widows uh, and people I was working with. And uh, it became, that was my new dream. I tell people all the time, I didn't change, I exchanged. Mm-hmm. I turned in the American dream and I took up this kingdom dream, this this dream where we seek first the kingdom of God, we love others more than ourselves. we go out and make disciples and we actually practice Christianity and not believe it. We begin to do the things God called us to do. We begin to share our faith, baptize people, make disciples, feed the poor, uh, uh, clothe the naked, and uh, be a husband to the widow and a father to the orphan. And we begin to do the things God's called us to do. And um, so that's my famous poor story. Is I, That was at this point where I had this epiphany and I realized I had to start all over again. And so I literally blew it up and... Uh, started all over again. My partners thought I was foolish and an idiot. And I got told that by the way. Uh, and it was horrible going through that with my friends and people. Uh, but this best decision I ever made. And I've never looked back Hmm. and regretted it for one minute. Yeah. I love that. I love (laughs) you saying you exchanged your American dream for the kingdom dream. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's what we're all called to do. Amen. So, and also you talked about, uh, like your heart was changed, you know, your heart's in the right place, but your actions are still yeah. kind of holding on to the American dream and how the Lord revealed those things in time to convict you of those things, sure. to let go of the behavior after the heart. You know, I think a lot of times we want to fix the behavior, but the behavior follows the heart. So Yeah, they really go hand in hand. You know, a lot of times for me, you, you'll get this heart change, but if you don't change your behavior, your heart will grow, go, go hard again. And But you can't change your heart just by changing the behavior. But what I have found is that when we change the behavior with the right heart, that it, it begins to show us things about ourselves. You know, I, I, I could, my heart was for the lost and I began to have this heart for the disenfranchised and those that were suffering. But I believe had I not changed the behavior, I would have lost that. In other words, I would have hardened my own heart again by pursuing these other things. And so I think there's a, these things aren't really juxtaposed against each other, but, but are meant to go side by side. And the challenges and even our failures uh, in trying to do the behavior that the Bible calls for, we learn so much as we fail. I tell people all the time, I, uh, I always like that old business adage, you, you fail all the way to the top. 
And, uh, and I think it's true in life, you know, that if you're really sincere and you really want to serve and love and follow the Lord, then every failure you make is a learning experience. And, you know, what I kept learning was is that, that in my own power, I couldn't do any of these things, but that God was ready there with the Holy Spirit and he was ready there to show me the way to do things God's way. And, uh, but I had to keep failing and so he could, because there was more lessons to learn. And so I'm, I'm really good at failing. I tell people all the time, uh, one of the things I think I, I have to offer in the missionary world is I think I've made every mistake you can make so I can help the next guy uh, through my failures and, and through the things that I've mistaken and mistakenly done wrong and all my cultural missteps and 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 all my fallacies and failings, I, I, what I would really like to do is hope it's an encouragement to the next person. I tell people all the time that I, that I hope that when they get around me and they come and work with us in Africa and I get a chance to speak in their church, that they don't leave there thinking what a great guy Glenn is and what great sacrifice Glenn's made and all that stuff. That's like stupid to me. But rather that what they would do is they would come and say, wow, you can really do this. That, that what it's really all about is a, is, is, is a childlike faith and, and knowing God is faithful and, and you just go and, and he meets you at your point of greatest need and in failure and he shows you the way and teaches you. And he wants us to learn it. He could wave a magic wand and make everything work perfect. But that's not God's way. Mm -hmm. uh, God walks through the valley of the shadow of good and evil uh, with us. Uh, he could make the valley go away, but it's not his plan. We have to go through it, and he goes with us. And what a glorious plan it is. And uh, so anyway, I... I just really enjoy the the journey, and 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 what I love doing is when I'm in America, particularly, I share about that journey and uh, what what it's been like for me to go through it, and and all my successes and failures. And the failures are really important because the thing I learned from the failures is that uh, I'm inadequate, and God's adequate, and my job is to is to just trust him and have a childlike faith that he's going to work these things out and accomplish his purpose really in spite of us not because of us we like to think we're you know people want to think there's this great man of god or woman of god and she's going to do all these great and mighty things no there's god and he's <laughs> going to do that and he uses regular people and he does amazing things yes i love that so speaking of africa what was your journey getting to africa well, I kind of following up on the last story, you know, I, I I was making disciples here. I had no desire to go to Africa. My, uh, uh, as you might imagine, I was mentioning Island Community Church, who was really into short term and missions, and and was really founded by God guys in long term missions. So they were all mission oriented, and that was fine for me. I, I found it interesting, and I, I kind of admired everybody for having done that. Had no interest in it whatsoever. I was perfectly content not only content but i would tell you i was fulfilled i mean i'm leading people to the lord on a regular basis we're interacting with the community we're affecting change in the in two of the most dangerous zip codes in america and we're we're expanding god's kingdom there and we're doing good work and making disciples i had absolutely i was fulfilled really i mean just 
uh, in my walk with the Lord, in my growth with the Lord. Everything was going the way I wanted it to. And, and now I had, at this point, I'd already divested myself of all those things holding me back and and uh, and had taken a rather simple job, uh, literally driving a truck for a guy, just picking up and delivering things. I had super simplified my life to focus so that only making disciples and working with these guys in this ministry was, was really what I was focused on. I was totally content. And my pastor at the time, uh, Jeff Bronner, came to me and he wanted to know if I wanted to go to a short-term mission trip. I said, no, thanks. Have a nice day. And so he asked me if I would just pray for it, pray about it. And I said, you know, okay, okay. And I'm the kind of guy your pastor asks you to do something. I take that serious. And so I, you know, uh, I decided to go home and pray about it. So I kind of prayed like this. So I went home and said, God, I know you don't want me to go to Africa because that's like the dumbest idea I ever heard in my life. And everything, you know, you're blessing me here. and Everything's going great here. And so, uh, but anyway, my pastor wanted me to pray about going. So anyway, I'm praying. No, no, you don't want me to go. You know, I don't want to go. But now I can tell Jeff that I prayed about it. Talk to you later. And so, you know, Jeff being the diligent man that he is, he calls me up and goes, did you pray about it? And I said, yes, I did. And he said, what did God say? Nothing. Just like I knew he wouldn't. He said, okay. So he gets out the phone. A couple of days later, he comes back. All right. Has God said anything yet? And I said, no. And he said, and he, his antennas went up a little. And he goes, did you pray about that one time? I said, you told me to pray about it. And I prayed about it. God didn't answer. So I know he don't want me to go. He said, no, I want you to pray about it every day. And I says, what? That's ridiculous. And he said, no, I want you to get up every day and pray and ask God if he wants you to go to Africa. I said, well, I already asked him and he didn't say nothing. So obviously he didn't want to go. He said, I want you to pray about it every day. And then he gives me this book on praying for the nations and all this stuff. And I jokingly tell people that my pastor tricked me. And, uh, but, but, but he's in good company because I think Jesus did the same thing. You know, Jesus... Uh, after meeting with the woman at the well, all the people were coming down and Jesus told the disciples to, um, to take a look that uh, the problem was the harvest was plentiful, but the workers are few. And most people hear that and, you know, they go, yeah, yeah. And they, but they don't pay attention to what Jesus said next. And what he said next was pray, therefore, that the Lord will send workers. I assume they obeyed him because in the next chapter he sent them. And so basically what my pastor was doing was the same thing Jesus did. So what he was doing, he says, damn, we got a problem. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Now I'm already working in this field and I'm perfectly happy. Okay. And so he wants me to pray about it. And, and anytime when, you know, when I, uh, when I go praying about things, you know, sooner or later, God generally is going to answer. And um, so, as I said before, it's like a, uh, it's like a trick when your pastor asks you to pray about something because there's a there's an ulterior motive and it's usually trying to help you see God's will. And so anyway, I, day after day, I'm praying about it. Same way, I get up, you know, I read the Bible and have my normal prayers, my real prayers, you know, where I'm mm -hmm. praying for my family and people I'm trying to disciple. And then I'd get out of my, you know, get out of my bed and I'd go walking through the living room every day and go, oh yeah, I almost forgot, Lord. Jeff wants me to pray and ask about going to Africa. No, I don't. I know you don't want me to go, but, you know, I'm just trying to be a good 
good disciple to Jeff. And so I'd keep walking day after day. He's calling me every few days, driving me crazy. So finally one day I get up and I'm walking through there and I said, Lord, I just want to know if you want me to go to Africa again. It's me again. I know you don't, but you know, it's this Jeff thing. So anyway, have a nice day. And, uh, and then I hear in my heart of hearts, not, not um, audibly, but I hear these words, I'm waiting for you in Africa. And when I heard those words, you know, the first thing you do whenever something like that happens, you know, you always wonder, is that just me or whatever? I knew it wasn't me, though, because I don't want to go. And uh, so the first thing went through my mind at this point is I must resort to theology to protect myself. So I told God, of course, you're waiting for me in Africa. You're omnipresent. While you're waiting for me in everywhere, in fact, I'm heading to the kitchen, get some coffee, and you're in there, too. So, uh, you know, I go in there and... um, had my coffee and, you know, thought I had quelled that little notion and everything. But when I come back, God just really felt it in my heart of hearts that God was waiting for me in Africa, the very place I didn't want to go. And I knew what it meant. I mean, you can't play games about this kind of thing. And so anyway, my pastor, of course, calls. And he said, what did God say? And every day he's calling, like, all excited. What did God say? Like he knew God was going to say something, which I thought was absurd. And um, so anyway, I said, well, I didn't hear it from God. What did he say? What did he say? He said he's waiting for me in Africa. And Jeff's like, what does that mean? And I said, that means I'm supposed to go to Africa. And he gets all excited. And so I go. And uh, the crazy thing about me going to Africa was, is that, uh, you know, I'd never been anywhere than like the beach. My idea, and, and spend a vacation going off and telling somebody about Jesus, <coughs> um, was like the furthest thing from my mind. My idea of what I should do on vacation always involved beaches and margaritas. That's my idea of what a vacation was all about. And to go somewhere, because, you know, my image of Africa is starving people with swollen bellies, and to go over there and tell them about Jesus was like anti-margaritas and beach. I mean, that's like the anti-vacation. And uh, But anyway kind of the strange things that happen, you know, there's so much that happened that I didn't anticipate, you know, I don't know really, it's hard to remember now what all my expectations were at the time. But, uh, you know, I went with a large group. It was a rather long short-term mission trip. I think a lot of people go on seven to 10 days. And this one seemed to be, if I'm remembering correctly, more like 16 or 17 days. It was a long trip. We not only did seven or eight days of, uh, well, you have a day or two of travel each way, and then you have seven or eight days of doing the actual mission work, and then we went to, did safari in uh, uh, Kilimanjaro National Park uh, as well, and so it it was a little longer than most uh, trips like that are. But I went with a group where everybody else, I think, on the group had done multiple short-term trips, and there were multiple long-term missionary guys here. So I was kind of the only neophyte in the group. And I was also the only guy of a a certain age. I mean, almost everybody was in their 20s. They were mostly, uh, I was to find out later, probably half to three quarters of them not only had been on short-term missions, but at least thought they might become missionaries. In fact, I, I know for a fact uh, six six young men and two young ladies on the trip absolutely had every intention of being missionaries and actually were going to university, taking missiology and different courses, preparing themselves for it. And so I was, you know, kind of the odd man out. You know, here I'm a business guy going on this trip, which, you know, 
some people would say another reason not to go, you know, is, you know, you were out of your element kind of thing. But the only thing was, is that, you know, I'll give you an example. When we landed the plane, everybody jumps up and like, yeah, we're going to tell everybody about Jesus. And everybody grabs their bags and they're all praising the Lord and they all run off the plane, you know, all excited to be in Africa and all this stuff. And, and I wait till everybody gets off the plane because I didn't look at this thing that way. You see, God doesn't speak to me very much. And he told me he was waiting for me in Africa. And so I grabbed my bag and I walked to the um, kind of the staircase that went down onto the tarmac and where everybody else ran off excited and ran into the building to, you know, get their visas and begin our wonderful adventure. I'm standing there looking down off the plane and I know something, and that is, is that when I step off that staircase onto the tarmac, God's waiting there because he told me he was, and I knew that. And so as I walked down and stepped on to the tarmac, I felt the presence of God come over me. I felt the Holy Spirit come over me. I look up as I'm walking, there's these giant UN you know, aid planes and helicopters and everything out of a stereotypical disaster in the middle of Africa, just sitting there. And they weren't doing anything. That's just where they stored them. But it was, you know, all this imagery of, man, you're in a developing country. I'm hesitant to say third world because I hate that term now. But anyway, I'm in this third world country and here I am and this isn't a big international airport. I'm walking for 100 meters to the tarmac with my bags and all this stuff. And I'm just having this amazing moment. And then, of course, that moment ends because somebody runs up and robs me. And welcome to Africa because that's you get both. You get, <laughs> you get robbed and you get the Holy Spirit too. So it's a wonderful experience. Wouldn't take anything for it, but... Uh, so I get there, and all during the course of this vacation, and I'll try to make this quick, this mission trip, as it were, uh, everything that happened to me was very, very different than what seemed to be happening with everybody else. I'll just give you the classic example. Everybody was given these little flyers to go hand out, and we were going to give away reading glasses, and so people would come and uh, we had a group of us that were given a little gospel presentation while they were waiting to get their reading glasses. We had other groups that were going out two by two, doing little Bible studies in homes. And then at night, we were having this big crusade. So there was a lot of things going on. And so they gave us these little brochures to go pass out to let people know about um, um, this eyeglass program and to invite them to come. Hopefully, they'd stay for the crusade. And, uh, of course, all the young guys and gals that I was with, they got them. And, of course, they'd done this before. There'd been a lot of short-term mission trips. So you run in the marketplace, you can give all of them away in five minutes, and then you can get back on the bus and go back to the hotel room or whatever you want to do. You know, you, you got free time. Well, I had done a couple of weird things before I came. For one thing is I decided that it was really important to learn how to speak a little Swahili. So I seemed to be the, one of the only people that had learned how to speak a little bit. I mean, to me, it's important to be able to ask, where's the bathroom, for example? It's vitally important. And so I had learned some things, some simple greetings, and I could say some simple things. Nothing nothing fancy, just that kind of thing. So instead of running the marketplace, which by, they were going there, so why would I go to the same place they were going? 
I looked down this little dirt road off of this elevated road I was walking on that was paved and nice and had all these neat shops around it, little uh, roadside shops. And I walked down this dirt road uh, where I saw off in the distance there were these mud houses and and it was more of an Africa that uh, was a stereotype, uh, very much in need. Uh, an Africa where there was privation and 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 uh, people that may have genuine needs and it kind of fit my stereotype as it were of uh, a primitive Africa and when you're up on the road it's real easy to see people selling smartphones and cool t-shirts and um, and things like that even fast food but when you went down here to me this is kind of why I came was not for the part of Africa that's been totally westernized, but the other part of Africa. And so as I walked down there, I was struck when I got to the first little intersection, not 150 yards down the road, I, I came on, there was a group of el very elderly women, and they were all naked, and they were all standing in a circle facing something. I couldn't see what it was. And, you know, being a discreet Christian man, Westerner, you know, I quickly averted my eyes away, and as I walked down, I'm passing out these flyers, but I avoided that corner, obviously, with this bunch of naked women standing there, you know, and so I keep going down the road, but I keep kind of glancing over my shoulder, wondering what in the world's going on, because there's no naked people anywhere else, so there's something weird going on there. And so I go down the road, and I'm inviting people, and they're being very kind to me in my broken Swahili, and that I'm trying to speak, and I turn around and I come back up the road and I look and I'm, as I'm talking to people, I'm still watching these old ladies. And uh, as I see them, uh, I recognize and get closer. I see there's a younger lady in the middle, not unlike the ages of the people that I'd come on this mission trip for. And she would stand up and I realized there was a bucket in the middle and she was stand up and squeeze these long, colorful fabrics that I would later learn were a kanga. And she would squeeze all the water out of them and the soap out of them, and she would give them to one of these naked old ladies, and they would wrap the first one around their waist, and then she'd give them the second one while they were still wet, and she'd, they'd wrap it around their torso, and then the next one they'd wrap it in their head, and then they would begin to walk off. And I watched this process as I'm getting closer, happen, happen, over and over again, and finally realized what was going on. And of course, now I totally understand what was going on. This, this, uh, these widows only had one pair of clothes, and so if you were going to wash them, then you had nothing to wear while you washed and dried your clothes. And this, they were all so old that they could no longer hand wash clothes in a tub like they had grown up doing. And since they were little girls. But through arthritis and just being weak as you get older, they couldn't do it. So someone had to do it for them. So this lady provided this service for them. Probably, I know now, once a week or once every two weeks, she would set up and just take care of all these old ladies. And uh, so I began to follow one of them in particular because I was just curious where she lived, you know. And as I followed her, I went down and... And just a few hundred meters, and I found out she lived in a mud and stick house. It had no door or window. It had a cutout place where you went in the door and a cutout place where you could let light in through the window. They just had a piece of cloth that hung there. And she went in and 
pulled the cloth back from her door, and she sat on her floor. And she looked out the door now that she was seated, and of course there I am standing, and she's first thing goes through her mind is, who's this white guy, and what's he doing standing outside my door? And of course I felt rather self-conscious, but I realized in looking in there, she was sitting on this dirt floor in this mud house, she didn't have a chair. She didn't have a table. She didn't have a piece of cloth she was even sitting on. She was sitting there waiting on the sun to dry her because it was shining in through the door. And I, I turned away and, you know, of course, same as I diverted my eyes on the corner, I walked away and I had realized I'd never seen such poverty in my life. And uh, it was kind of my, this first instance of just being amazed at what I was seeing. Later on, I had gone and I began to share my faith uh, uh, as I had been trained to do for people waiting on getting their glasses and had led many, many people to the Lord during these times. And uh, one of the second strange things that happened was every morning we would get up and get on our bus to go and, you know, tell people about Jesus and go do different things around the community. When they'd open the gate, I had there were these Muslim people standing there, and as it turned out that in the days before, I had led these Muslims to the Lord as I shared my faith. Uh, but what was so strange was, is, is, and what I'm trying to show you here, is what was happening to me versus the other mission people. So I, they ran to the marketplace, and I had ran to the mud huts, and they jumped on the bus and they went to go share their faith enthusiastically and, and much better at it than me and and, uh, and much more experienced than me. But when I came out, I, I had these, particularly I remember these little short Muslim men, and they would come up and, and they would wrap their arms around me and they would hold me and they didn't want to turn loose and they told me that they loved me. And I told them that I loved them and my broken Swahili. And we would hold each other, and then I would have to go, and I would get on the bus. And sometimes when I'd come home at the end of the day, which was very late at night, they were standing there waiting so they could hold me again. And uh, I had also learned enough Swahili that while everyone else was eating in our little compound with the walls around it protecting us from Africa, <laughs> that... Uh, I went up, we had this raised area we ate at, and we ate up here and had these chairs, and you could see out over the village, and it was very nice. And so the first night I went up there and ate, I noticed that right behind us, it was a very poor part of the village, and there was all these kids playing. So I got to where when everybody else would go eat, I would, went and got some um, sugar cane and a frisbee. And I went back there and started hanging out with everybody in the back. And because I could talk to them a little bit, uh, I was invited to eat with them. And so, you know, we're eating beans and having, they're eating sugar cane, which I found disgusting. <laughs> and we're just visiting and, you know, had a little candy in my pocket and that kind of thing. And Anyway, over the course of this time, you know, everybody looks down and goes, what's Glenn doing down there? And I was like, I, I don't know what my preconception was of, of going on this trip or doing missions, but for me, it wasn't sitting behind a wall with concertina wire at the top of it and security guards with AK-47s. It was sitting out behind a place like that eating beans. To me, that's, 
that's kind of what I expected. And because what was funny was I, everybody seemed to get exactly what they were expected on this trip. I mm. expected this. If God was sending me something was going on, and I was going to find out what it was. And so, I was having this mission trip that wasn't like their mission trip. And the, kind of the coup d'état, of the whole thing is. Uh, Pastor Jeff had been trying to get uh, the gentleman that led our mission team over there, very experienced guy named Wade Atkins. He's just a great guy. If you could ever go on a short-term trip with him, you would end a better guy to go with. And uh, Jeff had been trying to, for some reason, he, he wanted me to speak at this crusade thing we were doing at night. And we were speaking every night. And it was great. Thousands of people were coming down forward and making decisions for Christ and all this kind of thing. And it was fun. We sang wonderfully and danced before the Lord. And it was just a great time. And for some reason, Jeff thought I should speak. I have no idea why. I mean, I didn't go around speaking in America. Um, I was just discipling my guys and teaching, walking with them in the Lord. But he wanted me to, and uh, and Wade kept telling him, no, no, no. You know, kind of like the only reason you bring a guy over, a business guy like that is, is that, you know, you hope he comes over here, sees what the world's really like, and he goes back home and he financially supports missions, which, by the way, is a great thing to do. And I, I don't disagree with Wade in, in thinking that, you know, he get, Wade was saying, you know, we got all these young men that want to go into the ministry. They want to be missionaries. we got these young ladies who want to go into medical missionaries. We had two young ladies on the trip. If my memory serves me correct, wanted to go to unreached people groups and work in Muslim countries. And so, I mean, there were some people willing to make some hardcore decisions and, 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 and really dedicate their sight to the Lord. So, you know, you want them to share. And what do you want this guy to share for, you know? So anyway, Jeff kept on and on and on. So finally he said, okay, I'll let him share. He gets four minutes. And I don't know if you've ever spoken to a translator, but you basically say something and then he interprets it. So what that means is, is that when you speak four minutes, you got two minutes. So you basically, you don't have time to say anything. And uh, that was my lot in life on that night. So I thought, what the heck am I going to say? So I came up with a pretty good solution. I just had my interpreter read the story of the um, uh, prodigal son. And I couldn't say it any simpler and say, I was like the prodigal son, and so were you. And the father's like, uh, like God. And if you'll come to him, Jesus has made a way so that you can be restored to your father too. That's about all the time I had. I just took 30 seconds to tell you I only had two minutes. So trust me, it wasn't much different than that. And when I got through, the reason they had me on the last night is because, you know, we'd had thousands of people coming down front. So everybody was sure. First of all, you can't mess up too much. So everybody was going to get saved was already saved. And then the other thing was, is that, you know, uh, there's not many, many people going to be there because, you know, we've been doing this now for like 10 or 11 nights or something. And uh, as it turned out, though, and there was a smaller crowd, but as it turned out, a huge number of people came down forward, which shocked us all. Because let's face it, it wasn't exactly an impressive sermon. And uh, and when we got through, all these people came down, and, and very shortly after them coming down, they herded them around behind this stage I was speaking on. I didn't even know why. They'd never done that any of the other nights. I didn't know what was going on. And then, oddly enough, the... Uh, all these old ladies came down forward and they lined up. Now, I'm going to tell you something that's going to sound funny to you, but we don't know how to stand in line in Africa. The Swahili word is mstari, and actually it just means like sentence or line. It's just, 
we don't have a word for even standing in line. Okay, we don't know how to stand in line. When you go to the bank, people literally shove and push each other to get to the teller window to do business. When you go to a restaurant, if there's a place where you go order, people will literally go up and fight to order. I mean, we don't do anything very orderly. You have to go to a bank that caters to Western people So if you want to stand in line and not fight over getting up to the front. So, you know, it's just one of those things. Well, here I am. I walk off this stage and all of these widows are in a single file line and they're standing there. And I turn around and interpret and said, what's this? And he said, I don't know. And so one of them grabs my hand and she holds my hand out in front of me and she begins to put these little small copper coins in my hand. I thought they were copper. I don't know what they are. And they were ancient. I could tell the most of them had any writing that was on them was rubbed off. They looked like just slugs, you know, little metal pills almost just flattened out. And she gave them to me, and then she walked away, and another lady came up, and they're all putting these coins in my hand. I turn around to my translator, and I says, what What are they doing? And he said, I don't know. And I said, what do you mean you don't know? Why are they giving me this money? And he literally says, I don't know. I've never seen anything like this in my life. Africans don't give money to white people. White people give money to Africans. He said, I have no idea what's going on. I've never seen anything like this in my life. And, of course, I... After all of them had come and filled my hands with some some amount of money, and they all left, I just put it in the offering plate. I didn't know what to do with it. And so I went and sat on the bus, and we waited like an hour, and they, nobody came to get on the bus. They were still dealing with all those people that came down front. And then they finally showed up and got on the bus, and I'm like, what went on, what went on? And they said, well, they didn't, it's like they didn't want to tell us. They wouldn't say anything. And so I keep pressing them. And so they kind of pulled me aside. And they said, well, after you shared, all those people came forward. He says, uh, we started praying with them to receive the Lord. And he said, they started manifesting all these demons. And, uh, I mean, people were throwing up and flopping on the ground and just craziness. And we thought it would be so uncomfortable for Westerners to be exposed to this, we rushed them around the back and we've been letting the African pastors cast out these demons behind there. I was later to find out that the place we were in was called Bariadi. And Bariadi was, um, uh, even by anthropologists, was considered the epicenter, the the focal point, ground zero, as it were, for uh, voodoo and witchcraft in Africa. So they had a lot of problems there along those lines. So anyway, the next day or two, uh, Pastor Jeff and I are out jogging, and he, we were just jogging along. It was the day we were going to leave and go back and go on a safari in the Serengeti, and he asked me, what are you going to do? And I said, what do you mean, what am I going to do? And he said, what are you going to do about all this? And I says, I don't, I don't know what you mean. And he says, Glenn, I've been on a lot of mission trips. And he says, it's like you're not even on the same mission trip. He said, everything happening to you, I've never seen one of these things happen. And it just keeps happening. He says, Muslims don't stand around and wait on people to come outside. And Buddhists don't line up to give people money and Nobody comes over here and picks up a couple of words of Swahili, and the next thing you know, they're engaged in the village. And he said, all these things are, and he said, uh, are not not what normally happens. And he said, uh, 
what are you going to do about this? And I said, I don't, I don't know what to do about this. And he says, well, you got to do something about it. And I said, well, I don't know what to do about it. What do you think I should do about it? And he says, man, I don't have a clue what you should do about it. So, you know, I, I went about my way, and I, we went, finished up, and we got back to America. And I uh, got to my house, and I unpacked, didn't really unpack my bags. I threw them down in the kitchen. and I walked through that same living room where God had spoken to me and told me he was waiting for me in Africa. And I stood there, and I just kind of stopped standing there. And, uh, and I just told God, I said, what do I do now? Thank you so much for listening to part one. Tune in next week for part two as Glenn shares his journey of moving to Africa and talking about the things he's learned about himself and about the Lord through this journey. You also don't want to miss him praying in Swahili. Go fully live out your story and we'll see you back here next week.